What is up, Reborn family? I am so pumped for today. I have a badass guest uh, on the Reborn podcast today, Katie Pavlich. She is a journalist, commentator, writer, and a podcaster who regularly appears on Fox News and other cable news outlets. She is also the editor for townhall.com. She is also a member of the White House Correspondents Association. Katie is the author of books, Fast and Furious, Barack Obama's Bloodiest Scandal and Its Shameless Cover-Up, and Assault and Flattery, The Truth About the Left and Their War on Women. You can follow her on social media at Katie Pavlich. That's K-A-T-I-E-P-A-V-L-I-C-H. Uh, I'm so pumped to have her on the show today to talk about her journey um, and a little insight as to what she is doing and what she is working on. So let's bring Katie onto the show. All right, Katie, welcome to the Reborn podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Ashley. Thanks so much for having me on. I was so excited when you reached out. So, <laughs> so you have been, I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a long time. I just, <laughs> you know, um, I, so I'm, I'm really glad that we have finally made the connection. Uh, I feel like you and I would just get along so well together, yeah. like watching <laughs> you on social media, um, and everywhere that you go and just being outside with your dog and mm-hmm. the firearms and everything. So I want to start out, um, tell, I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about who you are. Uh, are you in Arizona? Are you in DC? Where are you at? So I'm from Arizona. Uh, okay. I grew up in Arizona and I grew up in Flagstaff, which is not typical, what typically you think of Arizona. It's 7,000 feet elevation, ponderosa pine trees. It's a lot like Colorado. We have a big mountain there. People ski. Um, it snows a lot. So that's where I grew up, but I live in Virginia in the DC area. So um, lived very close to Arlington Cemetery and the Pentagon. Um, so I'm in DC now. So very cool. That's quite a change from Arizona to DC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is for sure. And when I first moved here a long time ago now, uh, it was shocking. And I learned very quickly if you can appreciate two places for what they have to offer rather than compare them, you'll be much happier because Arizona is completely different than Virginia. And they're just not the same. So you just have to learn to appreciate the things around you and where you are. So made that I, change. I really struggled. I was in San Diego for the longest mm-hmm. time. I had a little house in Coronado and I oh, absolutely love. loved it. I just walked everywhere. I mm-hmm. never had to drive. And really the only time I would leave the island is if I was getting on a plane to travel somewhere or if I had to drive up to LA to do some work of, of some sorts, but, um, coming out here to Virginia beach, it was, it was a huge change. And it wasn't until I had to stop comparing the two until I could truly appreciate Virginia, uh, as, as my home. And so, exactly. um, so I understand where that's coming from. So, uh, so you're up, but you're not very far from me then you're like, uh, Hour, couple, couple hours, hours? Yeah. yeah depends on the traffic yes do you ever come to virginia beach uh, I've, I've been there twice okay. um i haven't spent a ton of time there but um i spent some time in williamsburg i had a good friend mm. who used to live there so yeah i've, I've been beautiful. down around there That's so awesome so yeah. so tell tell the listeners a little bit about what you do um and 
why, like, how are you and where are you at now? Yeah. So I moved to DC after college to pursue a career in media, journalism, um, political commentary. So, um, I am the editor for a conservative news website called townhall.com. I'm a Fox news contributor. I write a column for the Hill, uh, every other week around when the Senate and, uh, the Congress is in session. Um, and then I do some fun stuff uh, with more of my personal side. I do some stuff with Black Rifle, coffee, with full courts and firearms. Um, so I'm basically in the belly of the beast when it comes to the news every day. That's like my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. So I say it's a great job because you're kind of on the front row seat of history. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I've spent the last decade in D.C. covering presidential elections going to the White House, covering the White House, being on Capitol Hill, traveling overseas with the Secretary of State um, to cover stories with um, the State Department. So just all kinds of stuff. Um, I try to really have a shotgun tactic towards um, kind of what I do. So I like that. There, are, there are certain themes, but uh, it's also kind of like just do it all all the time. Did, did you know that you always wanted to be a journalist? Is that what you went to school for? No. Well, I, I went to school for it, but I, no, I was in high school. I was going to college because that's what you do, right? Got to go to college, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and I was kind of lost for the first two years of college trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and wasn't really clear. I was a business major, um, with a political science minor. And then I realized that there was no way I was going to get through my second accounting class <laughs> and decided to switch to um, something else. But I really kind of had a change in a light bulb moment in college when I went to a conference for Young America's Foundation mm-hmm. out at, in Santa Barbara. And they took us to the Reagan Ranch. And it was finally like, oh yeah, this is obviously mm-hmm. what I should be doing. Like I always loved speech and debate. Um, was always watching the news with my parents, you know, interested in current affairs, um, all that stuff. So it was kind of like, oh yeah, finally I found what I want to do. So I switched my major to broadcast journalism. I think my parents were very concerned I was going to end up living back in their house because I was no longer going to be a business major, mm-hmm. uh, but it's all worked out okay. So uh, do you think, do you think there's a lot of pressure on young people graduating from high school, like to know what they're supposed to be doing right out of high school to go into college? Yeah, I think we put young kids and young people into a tough position because we treat them like, you know, they're 18, they're adults, right? Mm -hmm. But then we also kind of treat them like they're not adults and say that um, they have all this time to figure things out. But at the same time, we're saying you got to figure it out right away. I think it can be a very confusing time because they're being pulled in all those different directions. Um, But I think that really comes from this education industrial complex that, you know, sucks kids into these universities and says, oh, it's no problem if you get your degree in five or six years. Of course, it's not a problem for them because they get paid more. Uh, Meanwhile, you're going into debt and there's no conversation about your return on investment when it comes to the loans that you're taking out or the types of degrees that you're pursuing and what it costs to pursue a degree that's not going to give you a return on investment to pay off those loans once you get a a job in the real world. So I I think that the pressure comes from, I think that the expectation that you have a direction is a good one. I think Mm -hmm. that you shouldn't be like spending your college years paying all the thousands of dollars just to kind of like hang out and try and figure it out. Um, I think that we should be more advocates of taking a break after school, maybe like taking a year to 
work and, you know, maybe do uh, an apprenticeship first before you go to college to pay all this money for a degree that you're not going to use, or that's not worth the money you paid for. Um, So I think that there is this, a problem with the expectation that college is the only way. And, but that, but that once you get there, like you can kind of just like hang out and figure it out while you're going into debt. I think Mm -hmm. that's a really unfair position to put students in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I believe that times are changing a little bit. I have um, I have three boys. One of them is a freshman in high school, and then I have a middle a middle schooler, and then I have a, a first grader. Um, and even like I, I try to think back whenever I was going when I was like in middle school, high school. I don't even remember even thinking about college. I mean, I grew up in the middle of Oklahoma, like Mm -hmm. on a horse ranch. I don't know if like, I just, now my cash, who is my middle one and in middle school, they're already talking to them about, you know, what do they want to do in college? But they're, they're going at it. Like, you know, how much, how much money are you going to make if you get this degree instead of like, let's find out like what these kids truly like. Like, I mean, for you, you picked business. I think a lot of kids pick business if they're not really sure because they, you know, it's, it, it gives you some sort of grounds and like a foundation for whatever you think that you want to do, even though you really don't know what you want to do. And then it takes like that aha moment whenever you went down uh, to the Reagan ranch to be like, Mm -hmm. dude, this is what I'm freaking passionate about. And this is what I want to do. And a lot of it has to do with like experiences, you know, um, my, my older boy trip, who's in, um, he's a freshman. He's like, well, I think I want to do like you know, design work or I'm like, yeah, I'm like, if you, if that's what you think that you want to do, like you need to shadow somebody now, like let's spend Mm -hmm. a couple days with somebody who does design work for me. And then they can show you what it's like, because you don't want to start doing school, get done with like all of your basics and then be like, I don't like, I don't like this. And now I just wasted three years and you know, two years now I'm in debt. Um, and I want to change my major completely. So you, so you had this aha moment of like, this is what I want to do, uh, to be, was it like to be like a journalist or ha- like what, how yeah. did, what happened? What was that kind of journey? I had actually, I actually skipped a little bit of a chapter here. I, I just <laughs> wanted to, I was thinking about like, okay, I don't like what I'm doing with school. Um, what do I like to do? And I liked sports. So I was like, oh, I want to be a sideline reporter. Mm. And then I went to this conference and was like, oh no, like I'm really actually good at being a political in politics and talking about current events and debating. And so that was another shift, right. To, to that. So, um, that was something that I thought about when it came to, I was like, well, sports are a hobby, but you know, political journalism is really my, my passion. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that, that switch occurred. How how did you, how did you make your way over, uh, to the DC area? Like how how long was this journey from whenever the the time that you were like, okay, I was at, you know, I went to the Ronald Reagan ranch. Like, you're like, this is what I really want to do. Oh, it was like right away. Like I signed up to do an internship in DC that next summer. Like I moved to DC for the summer when I was in college, I lived in a dorm room with two other chicks. Um, One of them was, was an intern at the white house. Another was an intern at some governor's association. So I moved to DC, worked as an intern for the summer where I work now, actually. And then I moved back to finish my senior year of college and I worked out this deal where I could still keep working remotely. So it was like my internship was extended. And then once I graduated, they offered me a job and I packed up my car and drove across the country and moved. 
And I always tell young journalists when I go speak on campus or people who ask for career advice in media, I say, come to DC, get your feet in the water. Like there's always stuff going on. There's Mm. so many different things to cover. Um, And then you can, if you don't want to stay forever, which most people don't, you can go anywhere. You kind of punch a golden ticket to wherever you want to be. So I got just like dove right in. And I, that summer I spent here in college as an intern, I just loved every second of it. I couldn't get enough. It was so fun. Uh, I was like at every single networking event. I was at all these panels and conferences and all that kind of stuff. And actually my mom, um, that the summer before, I don't remember exactly the timeline, but she brought me to the DC and New York to kind of figure out which city I wanted to live in. And I thought maybe I would like move to New York. And we went to visit New York and I was like, no, I don't want to live in New York. I want to live in DC. So right away, just like hit the ground running and just dove right in. Um, so where, where, where does this passion come from? I think it's genetic. I think it's genetic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, my mom, um, used to run her own PR agency. She was a professor. My dad's a teacher. Um, but they always were both very involved in like local politics and the school board. And it's not like they ever sat me down to talk about current events. They just were talking about them in general. Um, so I just think it was like something that I grew up with really. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So what did they, what do they think whenever you, you're like, I'm, I'm changing my major or like a complete <laughs> career shift. What did they, what did they say whenever you're like, you know, when they were like, uh, when you told them that you were going to get out to DC and, and make this career shift? Well, I think, you know, I was a business major because my parents owned a car wash and I think mm-hmm. that they wanted me to, if they were going to pay for a degree, they wanted me to get a degree that was going to have a return on investment. So mm-hmm. to their credit, like that made a lot of sense. Um, and like I joked about before, I think when I switched to broadcast journalism, they were like, great. Like yeah. she's going to be like back in our house and like, is not going to be able to get a job and like all this stuff? Not that they didn't believe in me, but they just felt like, you know, they wanted me to do well um, in terms of a career path. And at the time, it was like the beginning of the digital era, but it wasn't like, it definitely wasn't what it is now. And like newspapers and local broadcasts was kind of like dying off already. And so there wasn't a lot of opportunity at that point to get into the business, if that made sense. And so now there's a ton of opportunity to get into it with all these new digital outlets and that kind of thing. But they were all about it. Like they were super supportive. Like I told you, my mom brought me to DC to kind of like do a tour to see like if I was going to like it, where I should live. And they'd always really just kind of like let me do my own thing and like encouraged me to go off and do big things. Like when I was in high school, they sent me to DC for a week-long leadership camp. Mm. My parents had this like funny rule where for every like three sports camps or something in the summertime, we had to do one academic camp. Mm. So like they would send us to like a leadership camp or like they sent me to SAT camp. And so there was that kind of balance, but they've always just been very supportive and pursuing new things that maybe have an unknown outcome, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. taking those risks and being uncomfortable and learning to grow and figuring it out as along the way, right. Um, has always kind of been the way they handle things and something that they've expected of me, um, to pursue big things and, you know, get uncomfortable. 
So, so um, over the summertime, did was that your summertime job washing cars or <laughs> <laughs> my my summertime like also all year round job like washing car like cleaning mud out of the pits and oh. the blizzard you know like shoveling mud cleaning out the vacuums yeah we got to keep all of the change in the vacuum cleaners so oh. that was like, a nice perk you know yeah. digging through all the, the disgusting <laughs> vacuum cleaners but. That was great. I mean, growing mm-hmm. up in a small business like that, uh, mm-hmm. as you know, as a business owner, it was just yeah. like an amazing experience and learning mm-hmm. how to, about hard work and about government bureaucracy and how to manage employees and customers and all that kind of stuff. So I'm grateful that I had that opportunity growing up. Yeah. What is it that makes you so passionate about politics and especially being a conservative, uh, and, and I want to get into some of the books that you have written too, and kind of talk about those a little bit, but like, like why, like why so passionate? It seems like you also have a, a niche for, for women, like a voice for a lot of females. Uh, where does this passion come from? You know, like I said, I think it's something that I grew up with, mm-hmm. but I genuinely care about the direction of the country. And a lot of people say that they don't like politics or that they're not interested in it. And I always say, well, I can understand not liking it. I don't always like it. It's, mm-hmm. it can be tough and very frustrating and futile in a lot of ways. Cause it feels like things don't change, but if you, you might not care about politics, but care, politics cares about you. Like yeah. everything from your city council, your school board to the president of the United States government implements policies and the people who are elected through politics, um, or even people who aren't elected, but they're instilled through this political system has an effect on your life, whether it's how, how difficult it is to open a business, depending on where you live, um, whether it's restricting, as we've seen over the last two years of COVID, what you're literally allowed to do when it comes to your livelihood, whether you can work or not based on decisions people are making about what you put into your body, um, that kind of thing. So I think it's, like I said, a little bit genetic too. Uh, I'm a daughter of the American Revolution. My mom's side of the family came over before the country was founded and fought the Brits off. So I think it's just like part of who I am. But I think that it's really important to pay attention to how other people are running your life and what you have a say in when it comes to those types of issues and how much freedom you really have um, to pursue your own liberty and happiness in this country, right? So I think when you don't pay attention to those things, human nature starts taking over. And if you're not holding people accountable, no matter what side of the political aisle they're on, uh, they will implement policies that have a negative effect on your ability to do what you want. So obviously social media has a huge impact on a lot of people's lives. It, you've been doing journalism for for about a decade now, is that correct? Yep. yep. How have how have you seen as social media has kind of began to take over? Even social media kind of seems to be like the news source for uh, a lot of like the younger generations and where we get a lot of our information. How has that impacted uh in your thoughts? Like how has that impacted uh just like everything that's going on in the media and and the news? So there's two, I think it's, it's both positive and negative. So I'll start with the the positive. I think it's been an overwhelmingly positive thing because it's allowed everybody to have a voice, right? Anybody for the most part, I mean, we could get into like the whole censorship and cancel culture thing, but generally speaking, everybody now can 
tweet. Everybody can have an Instagram page. Everybody can be part of the conversation and have an opinion about what's going on. Whereas before it was like, unless you worked for a news outlet or you were like an anchor at one of the top three uh, news networks, they were the ones who were filtering all the information about what constitutes the news, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now we have all of this information um, from a variety of different voices and sources. So I think that it's more well-rounded in terms of who is represented. Um, And it's been a tool for people who in the past maybe didn't have the ability to speak out, like for example, during the Iranian revolution or some of the stuff that we're seeing when we see, see overseas or things that we see here, It just gives people a a better perspective on what's happening. Now, the negative of that is there is, you know, information that is unverified or when things get put out there, that's not true. It's really difficult to kind of take it back and change the narrative. So that can be very dangerous, obviously, if there's like false information that people have put out. But at the same time, it's like who defines what is misinformation or what's a false narrative. And I think that there's been this, you know, this, quests for people to try and control what people think just because they disagree with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then there's of course the negative side of, of social media, not being necessarily real life in a lot of ways, like outside of news for young people. And I do think that it has a huge effect on the way that young people think, especially for young women. Um, so, you know, it's, it's both positive and negative, but from an information perspective, I think it's been overwhelmingly positive and allows really for us to understand a better picture of how people feel about things. Today's show is brought to you by 10,000. They make some of the highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable training shorts in the game. I gave my husband Blue some of their tactical shorts. This is the ultimate combination of durability, mobility, versatility, and the interval short which is the most versatile short perfect for any workout. The tactical short was developed and tested with over 50 special ops members who put it to the test by rucking, swimming, lifting, and just all around beating it up, producing the ultimate tough workout shorts. The interval short is their most versatile style, perfect for gym days, spinning, short runs, and backyard workouts. They both have great features like permanent anti-odor protection, an optional liner that is very comfortable, and prevents chafing. It's a four-way stretch and breathable and lightweight shell fabric. I can definitely attest to these shorts. Not only do they look good, uh, he has amazing legs anyways, very muscular, uh, but he wears these shorts when we're running down the beach. Uh, He does tend to get chafing at times because he has the big tree trunk, strong legs, uh, and they prevent the chafing. So these are awesome pair of shorts that you can, uh, buy it from yourself or you can buy them for, um, for your husband, for your boyfriend, um, whoever. So at the heart of 10,000 is a stoic dedication to continuous improvement every day, faster, every day, stronger, every day, better than yesterday. They don't believe in overnight success, miracle drugs, cure-alls, quick fixes, or shortcuts. They believe in grit, tenacity, and grinding. 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off of your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc slash reborn15 to receive 15% off of your purchase. That is 10,000.cc slash reborn15. 
to get 15% off. And even my boys who are getting really into sports, as you guys know, if you follow me on social media, uh, even they, some of their tops and stuff, they're, 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 they fit so well and they're so comfortable. Um, Cash, my middle boy, is really, really into it. Even though the tops are a little bit bigger for him right now, he just loves the way that they feel. And I guess probably the way that they look, but more, you know, more so the way that they feel whenever he's doing all the athletic stuff um, from playing football to playing on the beach. So definitely check these, uh, this apparel line out. It's really, really high quality, guys. I have felt this. I've given it as gifts to Blue. Uh, my boys love it. Um, I even have one of their sweatshirts, uh, and it's one of the most comfortable sweatshirts that I own. So check them out. Thank you, 10,000, for sponsoring today's Reborn podcast. Do you ever feel like over the last couple of years that, uh, you know, uh, politics and and people having a voice too? it, you know, like it's really what's happening is our, our country is being divided. And, um, do you, do you feel like over the last couple of years, even the last year, did you ever feel as if the information that you were putting out, that you were being threatened to not be and go so boldly with, with your, uh, with your voice? I haven't felt necessarily threatened. Well, I guess, I mean, not, I guess threatened's not the right word. Like I understand maybe the consequence like Mm -hmm. of the, of maybe Twitter, for example, like Mm -hmm. banning my account because I think that men can't have babies. Right. Like (laughs) that is something that could get me kicked off of Twitter. Right. So (laughs) Um, and we deal with it at town hall. We deal with it all the time. Like they have Mm -hmm. these fact checkers who fact check stuff and it's really not a fact check. It's that they disagree with, um, the information that often that is factual. Right. And we, COVID was like a perfect example of this. So there was like the lab leak theory or, um, the 2020 election with them, like essentially banning anything about Hunter Biden. Like there's all kinds of stuff that they say they're fact checking, but they're really just trying to drive a narrative. But in terms of the broader picture about whether we're more divided or not, I saw an interesting stat from Pew Research and it was all about how like only like 20% of Americans are on Twitter and then like only 10% of all the accounts actually tweet. And so I think that Twitter, which is you know different than Instagram, but Twitter is the mobs that lead to people losing their jobs or getting fired or whatever it's actually like a very small minority of people. People think because it's so loud that it is representative of everyone. And it's really not, but it's hard to kind of keep that in perspective when you have like thousands of accounts coming after you or pushing a certain narrative, right? Like if you're a CEO of a company and like thousands of people are saying something, it feels like a lot. But I've found that generally the people who complain or call for the cancellation of something aren't, aren't, the audience or customers in the first place, they just need something to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I, I remember whenever I saw you for the first time, I believe it was Fox news primetime or was it, it was Fox. Maybe. Uh, but it, I was like, man, I was like, she just looks stunning and just oh, how thanks. you're able to like <laughs> communicate with your, you know, what, what was like your, your break? Like, I don't want to call it like a big break, but what was it that got you to that level of, of being able to have such a big platform to talk about the things that are important to you? 
Well, I wrote my first book and I think that, um, what was the name of your first book? My first book was called fast and furious. It was about the, um, the scandal where the Obama justice department sent thousands of guns to Mexican cartels and ended up killing a border patrol agent and hundreds of innocent people in Mexico. Um, that was kind of my big, not break, like you said, but it kind of launched me into a new category of credibility. Uh, it was a very thoroughly investigated book. I was like 23, 24 and it, was New York Times bestseller. So that really gave me kind of like a body of work mm. to present myself. And that I think gave me more opportunity to do some TV and to, you know, um, comment on other issues. Um, so that was probably like the, the big first thing. Um, did, did, but luckily uh, I've had, sorry, did the, did the, okay. did the ATF ever come knock on your door? Uh, they didn't knock on my door, but there were a few weird, uh, things that happened. Uh-huh. Like, for example, I was at a book party for a friend of mine who wrote a book about how to get a gun in DC. And there were these ATF agents there and they kind of like cornered me at this party to talk to me about how like the scandal was not being portrayed properly. And then I went to a briefing at ATF headquarters about gun trafficking. And at the end of the, the, session i was like walking out and there were like three agents just like blocking the stairs so they made me go around and like watched me leave just like stupid stuff like that Mm -hmm. you know um and then like the department of justice was working with um like a meet like a media watchdog group to try and like smear reporters who were writing about this and so you know my name was on that list of people they were trying to discredit like Mm -hmm. the work that we were doing um so yeah i mean it wasn't anything like crazy, but you know, minor inconveniences. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about the book that you wrote. When did you write this book and how long did it take you to write it to do all? Cause there's, a, there's a lot of research that went into that and a very, very interesting story. Um, yeah. so to, like, when did you, how long has this book been published and how long did it take you to write it and do all the research? Yeah. So, wow. It's been public. It got published in, I believe 2012 and it, feels like so long ago now. Um, but it was a story that I was working on anyway. So it was something that I was covering from DC, going to hearings, looking at documents, working with other writers and reporters about the information, meeting with whistleblowers about what was actually happening. Um, so there were like a ton of hearings and there was tons of documents that weren't being released. And there was this big fight between like the oversight committee and the justice department and the white house and so I never intended to write a book about it. I got a call, a phone call from a publisher, uh, Regnery, who published that book. And they asked me if I wanted to turn it into a book. Mm-hmm. So they gave me three months to like compile everything. So I still had to do like a ton of new research, but the good news was that I had already done like a lot of the work. So I just basically had to rewrite all these individual stories and put it in order. Um, it was definitely very challenging, but I had already been writing about it for like a year. So, so do, you, was re- do you get to pick these stories or d- does somebody come to you and be like, Hey, I think this is going on. Like, why don't you look into this and see what the facts are and what you can find it, find out. How yeah. Does it's like a combination of people coming, approaching me, giving me mm-hmm. tips about things and going and looking into them or me coming up with uh, story pursuits on my own. It's just kind of like all an all hands-on approach to mm-hmm. information gathering. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I wrote that book and it did well, which I was grateful it did well. Um, cause I was just so infuriated and I was from Arizona and that's 
the the story is the the crux of the story is from Arizona, mm-hmm. um, and I'm, you know it's a border state, obviously. So I really understood the topic really mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So it was mm-hmm. something that I was very familiar with, and so it was a natural um, kind of progression into that book. So um, I don't want to get too far off track, but uh, the listeners that they maybe don't know you. I know because I follow you on social media that you're a big 2A yeah. supporter. Um, it, w- were you extra passionate about the story and, and writing the book as well because uh, you are into firearms and you do go shooting yeah. regularly? Can you talk about a little bit about your background of firearms and, um, yeah. and and did that have any sort of like, you know, segue because you were a big 2A supporter and your background with hunting and, and firearms and then getting the story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think my understanding of firearms and my background and where I lived really had an impact on understanding what was going on and like red flags that would come up that just didn't make any sense. So there had been this narrative um, from the federal government that like U.S. gun dealers were responsible for what was happening in Mexico and that they were the ones trafficking guns. And therefore, we needed more gun control to control all of these gun dealers who were clearly criminals who were trafficking guns to Mexico. And the Washington Post did this like big expose on that. And then it turned out that the gun shops named in this Washington Post piece where ATF agents were and, and officials were quoted were being forced by the federal government to traffic these guns and were lied to and told that the guns wouldn't be trafficked to Mexico. And so understanding that narrative and understanding that like, I know a lot of people who own gun dealerships and they're not the kind of people who would ever want to be trafficking guns to narco terrorists. Um, it just didn't make any sense that that would be going on. Um, so it definitely had an impact on how I understood the story and like what made sense, what didn't make sense, what the, what the laws are when it comes to, you know, firearms purchasing, you know, there's like a lot of ignorance in the media about how firearm purchases are conducted Um, so yeah. And then just the bottom line for me was like, they were framing hardworking Americans who happened to own gun dealerships for violence in Mexico that they were perpetuating. And then when border patrol agent Brian Terry was killed as a result, they lied about it and covered up and still continued to blame like gun dealerships. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so that part of it, I was because I'm a second amendment supporter and understand that it was just very infuriating that the government was doing that to people and then lying about it on top of it. So how, how does it feel after you've, you know, you've done these stories and you've uncovered a lot of, uh, a lot of dirt and you bring to light a lot of things that people really need to see the, the truth. How does, how does that make, how does that make you feel? Um, it, it, it feels like I have a purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it feels like, you know, giving people information that they can then take in and do something with is pretty empowering. Um, cause the goal is just to let them know what's happening. And then if it's something that they want to change, like they have the ability to, to go do that. In a lot of instances, I think the frustrating part is specifically about this scandal. And this is a lot of what happens in government is there was like no accountability <laughs> for mm-hmm. what happens. Um, but I'm just grateful that I'm in a position where I can do that. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a privilege for me to be able to do that. And, um, the platforms that I have to do it, I'm just, I'm grateful for that. So, right. Yeah. And to have a voice, it's, you know, it's having a voice 
for the for the oppressed that maybe can't speak out or and they, right. they don't have a platform or they you know they don't know how really the the honest truth of what's truly going on and and you are that voice for for so many people um i want to talk about your other book assault and flattery can you yeah. talk about that a little bit so you wrote uh this is your second book that you wrote correct yeah the okay. second book okay. yep what it, what was that book about so this book was completely different than my first book. Okay. <laughs> it's like totally different. Um, but I was sitting at the 2012, I believe. Yes. It was when Mitt Romney was running against um, Barack Obama for the White House. And I was at the DNC convention. And this was not shown on television because it was during the break. But during the break, they had this seven-minute long tribute video to Ted Kennedy and during the video, they stamped the words women's rights champion across the video. And at the same time, they were accusing Mitt Romney and just the conservatives in general of having a war on women. So they were accusing the right of a war on women while upholding a guy who literally left a woman to drown and die in his car. She suffocated to death because he didn't go get help for her. And so that just was frustrating to me that this like narrative about the right was being perpetuated in such a, a dishonest, hypocritical way. And so I wanted to write a book about uh, that hypocrisy and how, in my view, the left claims that they are very uh, empowering of women, but a lot of the policies that they've put in place over the years and the way that they view womanhood and our role in the world uh, is not good. They treat us like victims all the time. And I don't think that's a good mentality for women to have in general. So that book was about that and kind of pointing out that uh, hypocrisy. And I have a whole chapter on the second amendment in that book mm -hmm. and how, you know, if you really want to empower women, you shouldn't be forcing gun control on them because they need the ability to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. that's what that, that was the beginning of that book. So uh, I, you know, talking about like firearms for women, I didn't pick up my first firearm even though I grew up in the middle of Oklahoma, my brother did a lot of hunting. Yeah. I didn't, I don't know. Like I was definitely like a country girl, but I didn't really get into firearms or shooting until probably like a year and a half ago, like maybe two years yeah. ago. It just wasn't, uh, I, you know, even for me being out in the country, um, I just, I don't know. It wasn't a hobby or anything that I really picked up. And I have seen, uh, over the last like probably year and a half of of women really really getting in to uh, firearm training using their weapon system, um, I I do the tactical games, which I think that yeah. you should you should look <laughs> into getting into the tactical games. I've thought about it, and I'm like that training program seems to be a lot. Like it, it I work out, but that's like a lot. <laughs> it's, it's it's like a it's a whole it's like a level all on its own. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about like uh, your relationship with Jack Carr, and because yeah. you guys you were up at like the Sig Academy. Um, yeah. Was it like this mm -hmm. like around this time last year? A year ago last year. Okay. Oh, How was that? It's been a year. I it was know. awesome. That is so, yeah, no. Are they up in New Hampshire or where is the they are. Academy? They yeah, are. Very cool. They're up in New Hampshire. They have this amazing facility. That's on my to-do list. Yeah. yeah. I want to, I think that the tactical games actually have a, a competition or I thought they had something up there at the SIG Academy somewhere up in New Hampshire. At least they did last year. I'm not really sure what their schedule is this year, but how was yeah. that? How was that? It was, it was, it was short. So we didn't have like a ton of time, but uh -huh. it was awesome. Um, we went up there for a couple of days with NSSF, the National Shooting Sports Foundation and SIG. And of course, Jack Carr is sponsored by SIG for his podcast. Um, and I've known him for 
a decade. I mm-hmm. met him when my first book came out. And um, we've just been in some of the same circles. I met him at the National Rifle Association meeting 10 years ago. And we have a lot of the same friends. Um, but yeah, we were at the SIG Academy. I've done a lot of... Um, my firearms experience is pretty extensive. I grew up with it. My dad taught, you know, used to take me hunting. And then when I moved across the country and was in college, my kind of focus on firearms switched to more self-defense training. Mm-hmm. Um, so my progression has been well-rounded. But... Went up to SIG. Um, they have an amazing facility. I want to go back and actually do some kind of class. Um, but yeah, they have this like state-of-the-art facility. Their CEO is amazing. Um, and I've also done a lot of training at a Gunsight Academy in Arizona. That's where most of my training has been. So awesome. that's an awesome spot too. So yeah, it's cool. it was a great time. So Very we cool. needed more time to be there. I mean, they took us through the factory and they, they produced like 8,000 guns a day. Oh my gosh, that's it's amazing. Insane. And to be able to see that. Yeah, it was nuts. So, so I I want to um, I want to kind of wrap this podcast. I want to know what's what's next for you, like what's in the pipeline, and um, yeah, what can we look forward to, like coming coming from you? Well, my life is planned in election cycles, so mm. this year is going to be focused on the twenty two uh, midterm elections. Um, but in terms of what to expect from me, I'm really loving what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, doing lots of TV, lots of writing. Um, I should be writing another book, but I just don't have as much time now as I mm-hmm. used to have because mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I have more responsibility. Um, but yeah, my goal is just to kind of like keep doing what I'm doing, pursuing things that I care about, pursuing things that other people care about that are important to individual freedom and liberty and um, holding people accountable. So yeah, I'll I love that doing all that stuff. And, you know, in the meantime, trying to have a lot of fun too. I feel like I do a really good job of like working really hard, but playing really hard. Uh So I'm a big advocate for that. So yeah, that's what I really love about you is it seems like you have truly aligned your, your passion to, to fit into like your career, like your, your passion is your career, which is, which is really extraordinary. And not a lot of people do that. You know, they take the safe route, which would have been just, majoring in business and and taking over the family business. And so I think that's incredibly special what you have done. I I don't know if I told you this, but I actually found you through Jack Carr since we were talking about Jack because I haven't asked him. I don't think I've asked him this, but you are in his book as Liz. Are you in his book? Are you the reporter? It's classified. It's classified. It's classified. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah. We can't confirm or deny. Okay. Okay. So you're, yeah. So I just, I, I'm, I'm not going to say, but like, I, I saw the relation of like how you were kind of playing out in his book in the beginning of being the reporter. Um, and then I don't know, but anyways, I think that's, that's really cool. I'm sure. Have you got to see, have you got to read his new book in the blood? Oh, I haven't. No, I'm like you, dying to get I it. Know, I'm like I am obsessed. Too. I did listen to the audio preview oh, and okay. I was like, this is like so unfair. It's uh-huh. so good. Uh-huh. He's such uh-huh. an amazing writer. It's mm-hmm. awesome to see. Like, I remember when he was getting out of the Navy and was pursuing this mm-hmm. writing career, which he's, you know, had on his mind his whole life. But mm-hmm. I was just was so grateful and happy to see him succeed. Not that mm-hmm. I didn't think he would, mm-hmm. but it's it's not easy to. A, write novels that even get published. B, write a novel that becomes a New York Times bestseller. And now he has five books and he has this Amazon series. 
And it's just, I really appreciate when mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. things happen to good people who mm-hmm. work hard and earn it. And mm-hmm. he has definitely earned it in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And he's a good writer. Like it's mm-hmm. his, his writing is absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Like in the first book, I remember the scene where there's the fight with the cartels at the beginning. And then like at the end, there's another fight and he notices like a scar on his hand. And like the way he tied like the beginning of the book to the end of the book mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. was so good. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even if he wasn't my friend, I would love his writing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's been really fun to like work with him and, um, you know, just support his, his work over yeah. the last 10 years. So yeah. it's just been an awesome ride for sure. Yeah. yeah I, I love all of his books as well. Um, my mom was reading his last, his, his fourth book that's out. And she was like, Cause what's crazy. And I don't want to talk about too, too much about Jack because this isn't a Jack podcast. Jack, you're not on this <laughs> podcast, but uh, my mom, my mom was like, I had to put, she had to put the book down because it was so relatable to everything that was going, that was yeah. actually happening, which is very bizarre. Like some of the, like what he is writing, it's like, it, it has so much like correlation to actually what is happening or what has happened in the last year. So yeah. super, super bizarre. My husband's uh, grandmother is turning a hundred in April and she's <gasps> like his biggest fan. Oh she like cannot, she like loves all of his books, reads them all. So oh, yeah, that is amazing. Is is yeah. she in where does she live? She actually lives in Israel. So. Oh, she does. Yeah, that she is does. amazing. Yeah. Very yeah. amazing. So yeah. do you have so. do you have any hunts or anything coming up? Are you doing anything? So I actually um I did a hunt in October with my dad in Wyoming. We did antelope on horseback, which was wow. amazing. So awesome. And then um I have uh, a special project in the works for Fox Nation that I can't talk about yet, but it has to do with hunting in a way. So that's exciting. Um and then I actually just went to Lanai with my brother and his new wife and my husband, and we hunted Axis deer. So that was really fun. Um, and I've actually done more hunting in the last two years and I've done probably in the last 10, just because I've been so busy with work. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So it's like, I grew up hunting every year with my dad and then I, like was a young professional, moved to the East coast. Didn't really know how to like maneuver around the different style of hunting here. Cause out mm-hmm. West it's like completely different mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. Virginia. Right. In terms of yeah. how you get a tag or where you can hunt, what kind of firearms you can use when you're hunting, all that stuff. Um, and so now I'm like, getting back into it. So it's That's been awesome. really fun. Yeah. Dude, I uh, like, I have, I have a compound bow and you know, I have a rifle. I have like my shotgun and everything. I have never, I've gone, I've one time I went hunting with a girlfriend and yeah. I just <laughs> like that, like that was it. I, it's definitely something that I've always wanted to do or to yeah. get in. So it's just, like you said, it's really different here in the East yeah. coast. And it's, right. it's like not the same as, you know, being in Oklahoma or like yeah. the mid East, right. like, you know, um, like Ohio, um, well, they so, brought elk back into Virginia and I, they have like four tags there for the lottery. Oh. So I was like, I will be, I signed up for the lottery. So I'm hoping that I get in. That would be so awesome. Yeah. We'll see. Well, if you need anybody to like carry your bags or, um, yeah, you, know, you can come can, with me. <laughs> I will come with you for sure. Uh, well, thank you so much. I, I want to ask you one final question. Yeah. Um, what is like the legacy and the impact that you want to leave that Katie wants Ooh. to leave in your career? Oh man. Um, I, you know, that's a great question. I, my goal every day is just to bring people information and to mm-hmm. teach people mm-hmm. something new. So every time I do a TV hit or co-host a show, 
My goal is to be respectful of people's time because time is everybody's most valuable resource. And if they're going to spend time with me, whether it's five minutes, an hour longer, I feel like I owe it to them to bring them something new or to teach them something and be respectful of, of that time. So I guess my leg, my legacy <laughs> would be, um, yeah, having been respectful of people's time when they trusted me with a subject or a topic, um, I guess with my work. And then just personally, I, you know, I would want to leave behind a legacy of being a good friend, being loyal, um, being someone who people can rely on mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. honest and true. And um, yeah, so that's kind of mm-hmm. what I would say, but mm-hmm. Yeah. If if you if you kind of could imagine your career like the pinnacle of your career, are there any like advances or moves that you're like this is my goal and this is where I want to get? Because you've made I mean just like a a decade, I guess like some people are like that's like a long time, but dude, really like if you look back, it goes by so <laughs> yeah. fast. It does. You know? It goes by, it goes really by fast. so yeah. fast. So like what like. Is there anything or like any other place that you would rather be than, you know, I, you know, I, I, I know that you've expressed that you absolutely love what you're doing now, Yeah. but, um, what, like, what else would you want to do in your career? Yeah, no, I, I love everything I'm doing now, but times change. Right. Um, I do have some goals maybe in the future. I don't know. I think it'd be really cool to work in the white house just, Mm -hmm. just to say that you've done it and to, to serve the country in a different way that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but I love what I'm doing now and I plan on continuing to do it. You know, maybe someday I'll want to pursue something else like a business. You know, my mom had this long career and then she decided she wanted to spend more time with us. So she started a business so she'd have more flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just never know, you know, nothing mm-hmm. is ever forever. Mm-hmm. And even if you really love something, it might not be a fit forever. Mm-hmm. Um, for now it's great, but I would be open to like opening a business or, you know, I don't know. So cool. It sounds like it sounds like that you have the right foundations to do that, especially with how you grew up and with your family. So yeah, whichever way you choose, and um, <laughs> it's it's just been awesome getting to know you. Katie. You too. Yeah. Thank you I gotta so come much. to Virginia Beach. I yeah. will come down. I gotta go to American Brew. Yes. So I'll make it down at some time, and I'll I'll yes. look you up. So. Do you have a Do you have a favorite uh, uh, Black Rifle coffee that you that you like? I love the Silencer Smooth. Like mm, that's my jam. Okay. So. All right. Yep, Silencer Smooth. Jam. Got it. Yep, yep. All right, Katie. Well, thank you so much for joining me on thank today's you. Reborn podcast. I really appreciate it. And I, I hope that one day we can like link up and like hang yes. out in like real time together. Absolutely. Let's All make right, it happen. Katie. All right. Have a great Good day, girl. You. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening to Reborn with Ashley Horner. Be sure to follow us, leave a review on the Apple podcast and tell your friends about the show. Thank you again so much to listening to Reborn podcast from Ironclad. I will see you guys next week. Bye.